We're going to get started. Tonight, your kids are going to be learning about the Tower of Babel. And we know the story where God uh, basically had to come down and confuse the languages because they were disobeying him. They were building a tower unto the heavens. Now, God had told them to spread out, fill the earth. And they said, nah, I think we're going to stay right here and we're going to make uh, a tower, a permanent place. We're not going to spread out. And so God has a, a tendency that when we go astray, he has a tendency to bring us back. You know, I, I'll tell you, bottom line, guys, is this. I, I know that in my life, if I ever decide to, you know, go astray and, and live in disobedience, pornography, drugs, uh, whatever the case might be, I can guarantee you this, I will get caught because of God's mercy and grace for me. He will make sure that I get caught because he loves me enough that he would want me to be back on track. And ultimately, that's what he does here with the Tower of Babel, is he sometimes allows us to, to go astray. He, he's testing us. He wants us to, to, to not do that. But when we get so far, he loves us enough to say no, enough to get us back on track. Well, we're going to see that tonight, uh, we're going to start getting into some disobedience here. And we're going to see that God is going to allow some of these ha to ha things, things to happen, but he's going to provide a way out. Okay, I don't know how far we're going to get tonight, but you're going to see. Let's uh, pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening. Again, thank you for your wonderful, wonderful word that is truth. Father, it's alive, it's living, it's in us. And we just pray now that that word would just touch us in ways, speak to us in ways individually, personally, in ways that uh, only you and the Spirit can. Father, remove me tonight, and may you speak. May you be the one to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope you can see my excitement from this, because I just, I, I love teaching the word. And you know, as long as I live, I know I'm going to continue to learn. I learn along with you. Every day that I get to study the Word, I'm learning, I'm growing. Uh, much of what I'm sharing with you, I learned from a man named Daniel Joseph as he went through the book of Genesis. I've learned some bits and pieces from, from uh, Henry Morris and, and Matthew Henry commentary. And I... I, I, I I just get rare times where I get these ideas myself, where God speaks to me and I have these other things. Uh, I, I'm constantly gleaning from other people. And I, I'm thankful for that because, again, that's part of God's mercy. I don't want anybody to ever put me up and think, oh, Matt, Brian, he is so smart. No, I'm not. You can go ask my wife. Okay? I guarantee it. She'd agree. I'm not so smart. I just love Jesus. You know, you don't have to be a pastor you don't have to be, you know, an evangelist to know these things, to love God, and to be used by God. As a matter of fact, as you go through the museum, as you exit the museum, you're going to see a, a, a quote by Jeff Clawson. He was a farmer. And you know, I don't remember how many people were at his funeral, but he died here not long ago, died young of a disease that was in his heart. But bottom line, as a farmer, he had over 500 people come to his funeral. You know why? Because he loved Jesus. Not because he was a pastor, not because he was an evangelist, 
You know, there's a verse in the New Testament I love in Acts. We are all called to do the work of an evangelist, it says. I don't care if you are just a farmer or just a teacher or just a stay-at-home mom or whatever you want to say. Just. You're not just. You're a disciple of Christ Jesus. And you are called to do the work of an evangelist. A good friend of mine, he's just a garbage collector. And when people ask him what he does for a living, he says this, I'm a disciple of Christ Jesus <clears throat> disguised as a garbage collector. <coughs> I love that. That's what we are. And so I appreciate you guys coming here tonight to study and learn because this is how we better ourselves and draw closer to God by studying his word. And that word is going to just radically change your lives. I, I know it will. Well, let's get started here. We're going to pick up at verse 18 tonight in chapter 2 of Genesis. It says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. I talked about that already. As a Christ figure, Adam was given total power, total authority, whatever he named him, that was it. Just like when God said, let it be, it was so. He has complete authority. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now, we're going to continue here. We'll come back to focus on some of these things, but just to give you the story. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs. Literally, the Hebrew word there is side. We don't know it was a rib. We'll talk about that a little bit more, but uh, just go with rib for now. Then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now Sunday we talked about being naked. They weren't naked like you think of naked. They were covered with the glory of God. They were in full glory just as God clothes himself in light as with a garment. Adam and Eve were clothed in light. Okay? Until after the fall. Well anyway, a um, couple of things here. I, I will say real quick with man's ribs. I, I do believe that there's a good chance it was rib. We can get that from that Hebrew word. But notice he says bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So not just the bone, but flesh. There's a, a whole, a wholeness that is pictured here. But uh, we're not going to talk too much about that tonight. Verse 19. As I said, God made Adam in his image. As Pastor Russ talked about, in that triune image, Adam was made. Well, we talked about that authority that he, he was given. But I also want you to see it in the New Testament as well. In Luke chapter 10, verse 17, we see that Jesus is sending out the disciples to spread the gospel ultimately. And it says the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. 
He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. It almost sounds like Jesus was giving them complete authority here, doesn't it? You know why it sounds like that? Because he was. This is a picture. He again is trying to take them back to the beginning to declare the end. To understand the end, he's taking them to Genesis. When he's talking about, I saw Satan fall like lightning, I think they would have thought back to how Satan got in the garden. When he says that I give you authority to trample on snakes, they would have gone to the serpent of the garden. He's taking them back, and when he says, I'm giving you full authority, they would have remembered Adam had full authority. But because of Adam's disobedience, that glory had to be taken away. He lost some of that glory. He lost some of the blessings of being God's child. And his dominion, his authority was compromised as in dominion was given to Satan. You see, right now, we have been given authority over Satan. Even though Satan still, as the scriptures say, still stands as prince of this earth. Even though Jesus has come, do you know that he is still prince of this earth? It's not until the book of Revelation in chapter 11 that we see it says... When the seventh trumpet blows, it says, Now the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God. When Jesus comes back, that is when the final, ultimate authority will be taken back. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 4? We're going to visit it here later, but Matthew 4 is when we see that Jesus is tempted by the devil. I used to read that very confused because the devil would come and say, you see all these kingdoms? I'll give them to you if you will only bow down and worship me. I used to think, like, they don't belong to you. No, they do. He is prince of this earth. That wasn't an empty, you know, offer. You see, Satan has power today, but he doesn't have power over us. You know why? Because of Yeshua's power, Jesus' power in us. Not my strength. Man, he'd whip me up easy. But because of Christ in me, there is no authority. Because of Christ in these disciples, they had authority. But the whole point is there is a paradigm shift taking place here. From the garden where things were perfect, and then they lost that because of disobedience. Jesus is coming back saying, I'm restoring this again. I am restoring ultimate power and dominion to you again. That is what's going on here. Very important to understand this paradigm shift. In Acts chapter 16, verse 16, we see Paul. And he says this, once when we were going to a place of prayer, we were met by a female slave. She had a spirit. She predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money by her owners by fortune-telling. Now, she followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. 
Who has the authority? The devil? Uh-uh. Paul did. Why? Because of Jesus Christ in him. This paradigm shift. Jesus is trying to highlight that when he comes. We're going back to the garden. That same authority that Paul has, guess what? We can have too. Yeah. We're returning back to that authority. But it's not our strength. Don't forget that. It's his. It's him in us when, he, when we become the temple of God. Because remember, there was also the seven sons of Sceva that tried the same thing. You remember them? They didn't have Christ in them. And the demons went and attacked them. They went out naked and bleeding. Okay? This is for the believer that has that power. A complete authority. In Romans chapter 5, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death, through sin... Okay, we're talking about Adam here, aren't we? And in this way, death came to all people, including us, because all sin. In verse 13, it says, To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. Right? I mean, before the Ten Commandments, people were sinning. But, he says, sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses when the law came. Because you see, the, the consequence of sin is death. He goes on, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam. Oh, what? Adam didn't break a command? Hmm. You hang on to that one until Thursday. But this is huge. Okay? So put a stick pin in that one. We're coming back to that. Adam did not break a command. Okay, who is a pattern of the one to come? Who's that? Jesus. Again, we see Adam is an intentional Christ figure. Through one will come sin, even though he didn't break a command. Through the other, eternal life, Jesus Christ. Now, I, I, I'm excited for Thursday, just let me tell you. Okay, Matthew and Luke, we also see kind of the same type of thing. The genealogies. One of them takes the genealogies of Jesus to prove he's the Messiah, the Mashiach. It, it takes it to Abraham, the covenant to Abraham. But Luke, he takes it all the way to Adam. So often we get focused on the fact, well, one does this, one does the other. Why? But the point is, is because it's the covenant. He's taking it back to the covenant and the promise of Abraham. For the one. But that covenant came before Abraham. It goes all the way back to Genesis. There's a promise of the gospel given in Genesis. Abraham is down the line of those covenants. We see it given to Noah. We give, see it given to Abraham. We give it, you know, he's the God of Abraham, then Isaac and Jacob. And then later he's the God of Israel. That follows all through the Bible. But we're not going to talk too much about that. Continuing in Romans 5 here, it says here in verses 15 and 18, the gift is not like the trespass. What Jesus brought is not like what Adam brought. For if the many died by the trespass of Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of Jesus overflow to the many? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, 
so also righteous acts, one, one righteous act of judgment that resulted in justification and life for all people. So the two figures that are presented here very clearly over and over again to make it almost sound complicated, but saying the same thing over and over again is this. You got two figures, the first Adam and the second Adam. 1 Corinthians 15 says, so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. Again, he is highlighting a paradigm shift. He's saying, taking you back to the garden to say when Yeshua, Jesus, comes, we're headed back in that direction. Very important. That's why I'm spending spent so much time there to highlight this because this is going to be important as we continue throughout this week. Verse 20, though, we see that when God makes a woman, well, before he makes the woman, one of the reasons is there is no suitable helper for Adam. The Hebrew word there for helper is azer. That's the word helper. So when you see, like, the, the name Eliezer, God is my helper. So when you see azer in Scripture, that's, that's the root there is helper. In other words, when... Adam was formed. He names all these animals. And, and a lot of times we hear, well, yeah, it's an animal. But there wasn't anybody that was quite right for Adam. We're not supposed to be mating with animals. It just wasn't a good fit. While that's true, that wasn't the point. The point is, there wasn't a helper for him. Men, we're not the smartest creatures. We need help, right? And if you don't think you need help, you just proved my point. Okay? We're going to talk more about this as we go as well. We need help. In Psalm 20, verse 2, it says this. May he send you help. That word is the same Hebrew word, azer, from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. Psalm 33, 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. He is our azer. Here in Genesis, God's saying, we need a helper. Women, I want you to understand something. We need it. That gives you one of your primary purposes of being created. You're to be a helper. What does that mean? We're going to talk about later. But I am so sick of women telling me how women are treated as some, something less in Scripture. That they don't really have a purpose and they're looked down upon. Nothing could be further from the truth. The role of a woman is so vital and so important, I can't even begin to tell you, but I'm going to try on Thursday. It is huge. This is not a small part of creation that a woman is. It is extremely important. I don't have words in my vocabulary. I'm not smart enough to emphasize how important it is. Okay? But we're going to come to it. In Genesis 3.15 it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Help came through the woman. You see, this is the first gospel we see in Genesis. Right there at the fall, we see that there would be enmity between the woman and the offspring. Between Satan and offspring of the woman. Ultimately between the devil and Jesus who would come through the woman. You see the Messiah comes through the woman. 
So when we, God says a man needed a helper, it wasn't just, hey, I need somebody to help me do the dishes and wash my clothes. Yes, we need that too. Okay? If my wife is gone, it's like air fryer food for the rest of the time. I mean, it's just the way it is. Okay? Bottom line is, it's much deeper than that though. God knew that we were going to need spiritual help as well. And this is kind of a little part of it, but it's much deeper than that. You'll see. But remember, it's not just our physical help that we need. It's spiritual help that the woman is to provide for the man as well. Ultimately, yes, by bringing the Redeemer, the Messiah. But we also need to understand that when God said that you are, or Adam said you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, why didn't God make her just out of the dust of the earth? Just like he did Adam. Took some dust and... Okay, or however he did it. I don't know. Bottom line, though, is he doesn't take dirt to make woman. Instead, he takes man to make woe man. Because he's trying to tell you something here. Something very important. There's a unity here. That out of the man, the woman will come because you are united in ways that I don't even think we can understand fully in this body. You see, this is very contrary to society, by the way. That we have different roles. You see, man and women, men and women are different. Completely different. But today in our society, we're saying, no, you're not. Matter of fact, if you're a woman, you can even be a man. No, you can't. You see, it goes against what God's word says, period. And when you go against God's word, guys, you've got nothing but trouble. Just like your kids are learning about the Tower of Babel, when God says to do something, you better do it. If you don't, he's going to step in. We're going to build on this as we go, but for now. 1 Corinthians 1.11 says this, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. In other words, guys, you wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for the woman. And women, you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the man. Neither one of us are better than the other. We are dependent upon each other. Because we are indeed one. A picture of the church. The bride and his groom. We're all one body. And if one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. It's the same in a marriage. If one side is suffering, the other side suffers. Because we're one. And by the way, just from a scientific perspective, do you know there, when, when the Bible says you become one with her, there is a much more literal sense to this than you even realize I'm not going to get into this to, to make this too PG-13 here today. But bottom line is this. Do you know that women, when you have had a child, you literally have male DNA in you now. Science has shown this, that you literally become one with your husband. Literally, genetically. 
This is one reason, by the way, when women have a lot of premarital sex, that there is, they have a much higher chance of losing a baby, miscarriages and things like that. You know why? Because the body rejects the male sperm initially. But when you become united with your husband, that woman takes that on as part of her own DNA. Okay? Like I said, there, there, there's whole articles on this. Uh, Creation Magazine did a wonderful article on this. But I just want you to understand that among the spiritual aspect, there's a physical aspect to this too. And so when God says don't sleep around, again, you disobey God's command, there will be some consequences. Bottom line. Well, verse 22, I love this. It says, he brought her to the man. Adam didn't go see her. The woman didn't go find him. God brought the woman. I don't know if he led her by the hand or what he did, but he brought the woman to the man. It wasn't like he was sitting there and going, well, this might be because of my lack of options here, but yeah, I'll choose you. Right? No. God brought her to him. Remember, Adam is a Christ figure. Does that kind of ring a bell for something that maybe Christ did too? How do we come to Christ? We, as the bride, the woman, the bride, the church, no one comes to the groom unless the Father brings him. You see, I can't choose to follow Christ apart from Christ drawing me. Now, I believe that God gives that option to everybody. I believe that everybody has that option, but God is drawing. I'll tell you what, I think he's calling some of you tonight. I think that God is trying to take you by the hand and lead you to the Son, to Jesus, to be his bride. But maybe we love the world too much. We'll continue on that thought later. But this is a clear Christ picture here. That he brought her to them. Not only that, but when Adam then names her, just like he named the animals because he does have ultimate authority, he says, she shall be called, whoa, man. Right? Woman. Now that is appropriate. In Hebrew, the word for man is ish. The, woman for, the, the word for woman is isha. Notice that ish, isha, they're the same. That the woman is within the man's name. Just like in English, it translates well. Man or woe man. Because we are one. That woman came out of the man. There's a unity that is supposed to be there. Now, here's what I love about this. If you look in, in Genesis, what are the first recorded words of Adam? This, right here. She shall be called woman. Now, we know he talked before that because he names all the animals. But Scripture doesn't highlight that. That's just a little side note. The important thing, the very first recorded words is you shall be called woman. Why? Why is that so important that it says that man named her? 
Remember, he's a Christ figure in paradise. At a time, you might even say it's a wedding when they're being united. I wonder if they had a banquet. Because what's neat about this is this is a picture of the end times. This is exactly what God does when he returns for his bride. Look what Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9, when it is speaking about end times, it says, when the bride is received, look, it says this, the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. So we're seeing that when the bride is received, he's going to pronounce we're one. Just like woe and woe man, ish and isha. John 14, 20 says this, at the day you will know, at that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Just like Adam and Eve were to be one, we see the scripture saying at that moment of the wedding banquet of the Lamb, Jesus is saying, I am taking you as my bride and I am making you one with me. How about the name? Look at this. When Adam confesses her name, you are woman. Look what it says here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Adam, as a Christ figure, was professing and confessing the name of his bride before the Father and the angels right there at creation. She shall be called woman. When the Lord returns, he is going to confess your name before the Father as well. You see, Adam is a Christ figure in every way. This, folks, is the point of creation. You. Not the dinosaurs, as I've been saying every night. You. You're the reason. This is why all of this is recorded. So that you can understand that you are the apple of his eye. His bride. In verse 24, as I said, they shall become one flesh. Matthew 19 says, Some Pharisees came to him, to Jesus, to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this man, reason a man shall leave his father and mother and will cleave or be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They'll no longer be two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man tear apart or separate. See, marriage is a picture of the church. This is one reason why God is so adamant about divorce, where he says, I hate divorce. Because what God has joined together, let not man tear apart. Today, we have made marriage this. One plus one equals two. We're still two individuals in a marriage. No, you're not. You are one. You are no longer two, Jesus said. 
you are 1 plus 1 equals 1. Therefore, what you do to damage your body, yourself, your life, damages your spouse. You make a bad choice, you go live an ungodly way, it affects your spouse. Bottom line. The two become one. We talked Sunday about idolatry. God calls it idolatry. When you are unfaithful to your spouse, you commit adultery, and that is the, the deepest hurt that any spouse can feel. And that is what we do to God when we step away from Him and we are disobedient. We walk away from Him. That's idolatry. And it hurts Him deeply because He loves you so very much. And if it hurts us that much to have unfaithfulness with, with our limited ability of love. I can't even imagine what that does to God when people walk away from Him. When they refuse to submit to His authority. You know, God desires that none should perish. The Scriptures say in Peter, right? He is patient, long-suffering. He doesn't want anybody to die. I'll tell you, this whole idea of marriage and unity was a big deal in the first century when Jesus came. The rabbis argued about what was okay to divorce a wife. Okay? Now, a lot of these guys were just messed up. They had awful theology. Look at this. There was a school of Shammai, which was a big one. There were two main schools, Shammai and Hillel. And Shammai said that you were basically... Uh, for immoral reasons if you could divorce your wife. Hillel, though, said if she, like, burned your toast, basically, messed up dinner, that was grounds for divorce. There's another guy named Rabbi Akiva. He was nuts. He thought that it was a, the, the Messiah was a guy named Barcoba who came around 120 A.D. He pronounced him as the Messiah. It caused a whole revolt that was even worse than the 70 A.D. revolt when so many Jews were killed. Rabbi Akiva said, if you found another woman that was prettier, you could divorce your wife. Okay? That's how messed up these guys were. But that's not scripture. Not at all. My point is, is that this was a major dispute between the churches, you might call it, the different denominational sects of that day when Jesus came and walked the earth. And so when they asked this question to Jesus, is it okay to get a divorce? In their mind, this is what they're thinking. Can I divorce her because she you know, burned my toast? Or because I found somebody prettier? What allows me to get rid of my wife? And so Jesus takes them back to Scripture to give the answer. He takes them back to Genesis. And that is why when we see these Pharisees coming to test him, is it lawful to get a divorce? We see him give an answer. He says, no, I made you one. Don't you tear apart what I made one. Don't you dare. So that's one of the reasons the Pharisees, I believe, were asking that question. You don't tear apart what God has made one. You just don't do it. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. His body. 
of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy. Husbands, how do you make her holy? Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Husbands, are you making sure that you're having devotions in the Bible being read in your home? Are you guys praying together with your wife? Are you making sure that the word is the center of your home? Because that's what we need to be doing. That's what it means to be head. We'll talk more about that later. I'd love to do this. But husbands, pay attention what it means to love your wives. Okay? Uh, like I said, I, I have a whole DVD called The Godly Family that will dive more into that. But for tonight, go in a different direction. Verse 28, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. But he goes on and he says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. You want to see how you're supposed to love your wife, men? Look at how Christ loved the church. And we're going to see this in an amazing way coming up. These, I believe this is the secret to a healthy marriage right here. To, to look at the Lord, to see how he treated the disciples in the church, how we should treat our wives. And wives, you need to look at the church to see what its responsibility is towards Christ, how to serve and submit. Look at the church. Look what, look what it's supposed to be to Christ. That's what you are to be to your husband. Again, we'll talk more about this, but there's a oneness here that uh, is, is extremely important. Now, we already covered, again, like naked really isn't naked, so I'm not going to give too much on that outside of this. Revelation 19, 7. When it says this, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, clean, bright and clean, was given her to wear. I like that. Not just linen, bright. Like... Glory bright and clean was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saint. Guys, again, we even see in Revelation 16, it says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Do you think this would take people back to the garden? Yeah, you bet it would. You see, what he's saying is, just as you used to be clothed, bright and clean and holy, he says, Yeshua, Jesus, makes that possible again for you. And when he returns, he's going to give you that again, so that you don't walk naked like you did after the fall. That's what it's going to be like. This is right, unfortunately. I wanted to get just a little bit more tonight. Let me do one thing here real quick if I can take one minute. I'm not going to read all of this. I just want to focus on one thing. This serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals. Satan, when we get to chapter 3 here, he is one of the most crafty of all creatures. You see, Adam and Eve weren't alone in the garden. There was one other person. 
there was a fallen angel called Hasatan, or Satan, the Satan, the deceiver. The word for serpent here is Nahash in Hebrew. Uh, you recall in the desert where they built a, uh, like they got bit by snakes and they would raise this snake up on, it was called Nahushtan because it comes from this word snake or serpent. But if you look at what that word means in Hebrew, it literally means to hiss, a whisper, a magic spell, okay, an enchanter, a diviner, a deceiver, a worker of magic spells, you might say. And it's interesting to me that when you look at Satanism, one of the biggest draws in Satanism is this, power. They love power. They hunger for power. They love to cast curses upon Christians because it gives them power. They desire this power. What did Satan fall to? He wanted power. He wanted to be like God. I will be like the utmost high. I will set my throne above the, the, the stars of God. Right? He wanted power. What does Eve want when she's tempted? Power. What is part of the curse? You're going to want power. Part of the curse is this. Women, you're going to have pain in childbearing and your desire will be for your husband. That word for desire, I, I used to read that and think, what's the big deal? That's awesome. She's going to want me. <laughs> right? She's going to desire me. Yes. No, that's not what it's saying. That word desire in Hebrew is sulka. It literally means to control. In other words, what that says in Genesis is your desire will be to control your husband. Women, one of the, the things that because of the curse you want, you want power over your husband. You want to control him. You're not going to want to be submissive. Okay, we'll talk more about that later. I know that some of you know, the men probably don't deserve it. It's not the point. That's not the point. We'll talk more about that later. But power is one of Satan's big draws that we have to watch out for. I'm going to close up with this here. In Revelation 12, 9, it says, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. You think that points us back to Genesis there as well? Yeah, you bet. Okay, Satan, who led the whole world astray, they'd have gone back to Genesis. He was hurled down to the earth. That would have taken you back to Genesis. But you see, this is more than just a, a literal serpent. This is a diviner. This is a cherub. This is one that covered the mercy seat of God. Okay, and his main goal, as you're going to see tomorrow, was a deception of lies. Okay, we'll talk about him being more crafty than any other beast and how that ties into Revelation later tomorrow. But for now, just kind of simmer on that. And some of these things that we put stick pins in, uh, I think tomorrow is amazing, and Thursday even better than that. So hopefully you can come back. Let's close in prayer, we're going to leave you with that for now. Heavenly Father, I just thank you that you alone have power, authority, dominion, that you, Father, have given that authority to us through Jesus Christ. Though it may be in this fallen flesh right now, there's a day coming, Father, 
when that's all going to be removed, when the kingdom of, of this world becomes the kingdom of our God. And we look forward to that day. We pray, Father, that just as they were disobedient at the time of the Tower of Babel, that we would not walk in that disobedience, that we would not suffer the consequences of those disobedience. Even as, as saved Christians, Father, sin has consequences, worldly consequences. Thank you for taking away the eternal consequences for us, for us who believe, for us who walk in Jesus' name. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.